will be in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. It says, But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this freedom and this time that we have to come together uh, to celebrate your goodness together, to celebrate your good news. Help us to, to hear and feel the weight of your very words to us this morning. These were not only stuck in the ears of Matthew and Peter and the other disciples and penned again by Matthew and and Mark, but yeah, they, they actually came from your, your mouth. These are the very words of Jesus we're listening to today. So help us to be changed in your presence, transformed by your spirit, and help our minds to be renewed by your word, as you promise you'll do. And help me to get out of the way so that your word comes forth clearly and that it changes hearts today. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Brother Jared kind of got off the hook a little bit talking to y'all about marriage, and here I get to talk to y'all about hell. <laughs> but, but it's, excuse me, but it's something we can't get away from, and uh, Jesus confronts it plainly. Um, I don't think it's every young preachers dream to, to speak about hell. And if it is, they probably need a, need a soul check. Uh, but before we get into this heavy topic, and it is a really heavy topic, I want to give you all a mnemonic device to remember this, this passage. And you know, a mnemonic device, in case you're not familiar, is like when you're learning guitar and you learn that the strings all stand for something, like Eddie Eight, Dynamite, Goodbye Eddie. No offense. <laughs> or like the names of the planets, you let them represent something else. Or it might be a song. So for this passage, uh, the, the learning tool or the memory device we'll use uh, could be head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Um, we'll have to change it up a little bit, but that's the way the warnings go. They, not just head, but neck. Head and neck, hand, foot, and eye. <laughs> So that's the way we're going we're gonna to walk through this. It didn't make a pretty song, I don't think. 
but maybe just hearing that song every time you look at this this passage it'll kind of help you separate all three of these and then there's another kind of thing on the front end we need to pay attention to some of your Bibles may not have chapter uh, verses 44 and 46 in them some of yours like mine might have it in black and kind of separated all or all caps or even brackets uh, and that's because 44 and 46 and later copies later manuscripts aren't actually there but as before when we see discrepancies between the manuscripts translators tend to go with the earlier ones because they feel they're more accurate and the copyists may have added things later but also it again it doesn't change any of the meaning because there's not a single person who denies that it's there at verse 48 so if yours does have that you can just see that as a place marker warning one warning two warning three so the first one is about our mortal life it'd be better for a person to be cast into the sea and drowned die the next three are about that eternal death that that continues on to give a a little bit of context let's look at um, the the passage right before it which i i was here with you a few weeks ago looking at that we know that jesus pulled up a child to his side let's see that that's verses 36 and 37 it says then he took a child had him stand among them and take taking him in his arms he said to them whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Now they kind of go off in a different direction for a minute and have a few more conversations that we talked about before. But this is the child that we are looking at in this passage, the same child. Jesus still has him in his arms. He's continuing to teach. And you'll notice that in this passage, Jesus does that. He takes things and people that are close by and relates his eternal truths to them so that they can kind of grasp it more clearly. We also need to pay attention to that very last ending where it's talks about the re eternal reward, um, or some, some translations just say reward. Verse 41, it says, And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, I assure you, he will not lose his reward. So we go from talking about a cup of water to an ocean or a sea, uh, and the consequences. So there's, there's a consequence for helping one of these children by just giving them a cup of water, an eternal reward, in, and that's assuming in an eternal life. On the other hand, if we cause them to sin, now we're thrown into not a cup of water, but a whole ocean. And, and then the rest of it takes us again into that eternal, eternal world where we're talking about not rewards but punishment so let's look at the very first one verse 42 that's uh, again that's the neck or the not just the head but the neck whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones will uh, who believe in me it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that is some harsh words from Jesus and we have to not backpedal on this stuff, not be apologetic about this, uh, because Jesus wasn't. It shouldn't pump us up to, to talk about hell. It should, 
strike uh, a real fear in us, a fear of the Lord. And Jesus does not speak of this lightly. In fact, right here, the millstone, the, the imagery he's talking about is really vivid. It's really dramatic. If you YouTube, uh, was it Joel Kramer, Hannah? Joel Kramer? K-R-A-M-E-R, Joel Kramer, millstone on YouTube. You'll be able to see the actual stones that we're talking about. So the millstones change really soon after that. And the, the ones we imagine have like two big winding blocks, one's massive. These are massive, but they're not that big. They're actually totally different. They have like a cone shape. It's huge, it looks like limestone almost, this huge rock, and it goes into a, a bowl-shaped uh, a, a bowl shaped stone, and a donkey would actually pull that around. Some of your translations might actually say a donkey millstone, and the reason is that would be the animal that would, that would pull them. But you can actually see in that video several millstones out in Capernaum. So they're actually in the same place that Jesus was, and you can see how cool it was for Jesus to just grab something right there and use that as an example. But if you've ever been around donkeys, you also know uh, how strong they are, and particularly how strong their necks are. So if that image doesn't help you, because they still do, from a distance, they might look kind of small, but a donkey's neck is incredibly strong. Um, I actually had a donkey for a while, and his name was Jack. Real creative, I know. But he was his little thing, you know, probably if I got scared enough, I probably could have hopped right over his back onto the other side. But if you put him in a situation where he didn't want to turn, I mean, I could lay down all of my strength, <laughs> and he wouldn't budge. In fact, he might even kind of crane his neck a little bit the opposite way just to show me it doesn't matter. You know, we're talking about like a neck like maybe... You know, it's not very big, but it's full of muscle. Um, and, and actually, you could put two or three guys pulling on it. And if a donkey don't want to go, they say they're stubborn, but really they just got a lot of neck strength. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is a big piece of equipment pulled by a really powerful animal. And Jesus is saying it should be hung around a person's neck. And two really, really vivid images. Not only are they to be cast into the sea, but they would be sinking down, drowning down. So it's almost like this vacuous suction at the same time because that's what it would be like if you had this massive stone. It could probably actually drown a few men if it, if it were tied to them. I mean, that's heavy. You don't expect that from Jesus. But we, we should actually, because think about when you have a child or you see a child that's not yours, even on a TV show, even if it's pretend, you see a child being treated unfairly, you want to take justice into your own hands, like right then. And Jesus is concerned about anyone who would cause a child to, to stumble into sin. So not only is he this child's father and looking out for this child, he's their true father and creator, but he's also the maker of the person he's talking about who causes others to sin. So he actually has authority not only as the father, but as the creator to say who lives and who dies. It's not the clay who says to the potter, you do this with me. 
is God who says to mankind, I set the stars in place. I stretched out the oceans. I spoke and the world was formed. So we need to remember that just because it hurts our feelings, it doesn't mean it's not right. In fact, if Jesus says it, it's totally and perfectly right. And not only is he talking about this child as a child, and there's some speculation that this kid might even be Peter's kid, and there's some good, without going into the weeds of that, there's some good reasons for that. But even if it's not, just think about he's somebody's child. So whoever's in that house listening to this as a parent is thinking, wow, yeah, Jesus cares about my kid just like I do. But then also we remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that Jesus was using children over and over as he was talking to the disciples and even the crowds about how children were like a representative for those who would follow him. Because you had to leave behind your pride, your arrogance, all that, and come to him like a child in faith to follow him. So God is addressing the disciples and us, everyone here, when he says... He's, he's protecting us in that way. He's saying it would be better for someone to die than to make you sin. But he's also telling us that as the ones who have influence. It's better for us to die than to cause someone to sin. You know, as we, as we move from this warning into the next three, it's important to consider why Jesus talks not only about mortal death, but about eternal death, about hell. It's sin that will take that child there, that believer there. It's not just the one who's causing them to sin, but then as they fall into sin, they'll both be doomed. They'll both be headed in that direction. And Jesus, not only does he have the right to talk this way, but he, he does this on multiple occasions. This is not just one of these things where it's like violent and kind of messy and brutal in the Old Testament, but Jesus comes and it's totally different in the New. It's one and the same God. And we see Jesus talking like this on, on multiple occasions. And in fact, one that helps us lead kind of into this conversation about hell is when he talked about Judas. He said it would be better for him to, be, to have never been born than for him to betray Jesus. And yet this was Jesus' plan. But it would have, have been better for him to have never been born. I don't know if y'all are kind of up to speed on some of the arguments going around, but especially in my generation and for quite a few really decades now, there's been a resurgence and... in some ways among liberal theologians, in some ways just in popular uh, videos and podcasts and things like that, of people denying the reality of hell, um, also denying the, the aspects of hell that we see clearly in scripture, such as the fact that it is eternal. And some will make the argument that, you know, we'll die and eventually cease to be after some time after some form of punishment. But if that were the case, why would Jesus say that about Judas? If he's just going to receive a punishment and cease to be, 
why would it have been better for him to have never been born? That must be something really horrible that he's going to endure. There's a few other problems with this kind of talk. Um, also, one of those things is that it's wrongly motivated. The logic goes like, well, if, if it hurts my feelings, it must not be right. That's not true. <laughs> it just didn't work that way. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. If it's, if it's coming from the mouth of Jesus, it's totally 100% true. Some of that logic goes on to say that they're using imagery, using this place called Gehenna, and that's true as well. Jesus, in fact, in all three of these warnings, where uh, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, can be found in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verse 24. It's the last verse of that book. And people will look to that imagery and say, but look, the context, in fact, let's go there. Isaiah 66, verse 24. And we might have to back up a little bit to see the full context. Yeah, we'll, we'll start in verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, this is the Lord's declaration. So your offspring and your name will endure. All mankind will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. <clears throat> as they leave, they will, seek, they will see the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die and their fire will never go out and they will be a horror to all mankind. People see that and say, wait, <clears throat> he's talking about corpses there. So it's somebody who, who's dead. But how would that make sense? Yes, he's talking about someone who's dead, the corpses, but why would he talk about a fire that never ends and worms that never die if it weren't to be experienced? The problem with saying this is symbolic language so we can't take it literal is that symbolism is usually used in a really emphatic way. It's because you, you can't grab the words to articulate exactly what you mean because it's so strong. So if this is symbolism for something, it's probably not something good. David, David Platt points out that symbolism is almost always in Scripture used to represent something, a harsher, a more real reality than we can use with our own words to talk about something conceptually. So we use images and pictures. So again, as, <clears throat> as we move into this discussion about hell, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take it lightly or flippantly. And on the other hand, we, would, we shouldn't get too uh, worked up about it because I think as you'll see, we've all caused some of his children to stumble. And some of our hands have all dabbled in sin, and some of our feet have all walked straight into temptation. And some of our eyes have looked lustfully, enviously at sin, at others. Let's move to the hand. If you're, verse 43, and if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
One time, a really good friend of mine, you could say, uh, somebody I really look up to, was telling me and several others why he was getting rid of his Facebook account. This might seem like a trivial thing to you, but um, for a lot of people, it's like, well, why would you do that? That's like getting rid of your phone number. And he, he used this verse, and he said, well, it's really not a sacrifice at all to, get, to delete an online account. And in his wisdom, it was better than cutting off his own hand. And, and, and that's, <laughs> sorry, that's a funny ringtone. And, <laughs> and he, uh, he really opened my eyes at the time. I think everyone else who was talking to him about it uh, to our, you know, our problem to hang on to those things that cause us to sin. We, we just want to grab it more tightly and be like, well, I, I have it under control. I can actually take care of this. And now, regardless of if the problem, talking about social media or Facebook, is lust or uh, promiscuity, or which is the first thing our minds race towards, or if it's just frivolous shopping, if it's wasting gobs and gobs of time that we could be spending with Jesus, we think, well, we get that under control. That's not really a sin. I can just choose tomorrow to do it. You should check out this show called The, the Social Dilemma. It's a documentary uh, on Netflix, and it's several of these people who work for Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google, Gmail, all these top executives and engineers and designers talking about how destructive these tools they've built have been and how they had to leave for ethical and moral reasons because they literally addict people. And they're constantly thinking of ways to, okay, we have your information, so what can we show them in this next millisecond that will keep them on the platform a little bit longer? It's pretty deceptive and manipulative, really, and, and I'm not preaching against the use of social media. It's a tool, and it can be used as such. But I'm saying, what are we willing to give up? You know, our hand is, when we think of action, hands and feet are the first thing we think about. You hear people say phrases like the hands and feet of Jesus, or, uh, you know, he's going to go out and get it. You know, that involves moving and grabbing. You know, your hand is involved in all, all sorts of things. It's the thing you punch with. You know, it's the thing you work with, typically. And, and if you kind of played that sick game that kids like to play a lot, would you rather? If you're, if you're not familiar with it, would you rather it goes like this, like somebody gives you two really terrible scenarios and you have to choose. You don't get it, like you have to choose which one. So it's like, would you rather die by millstone or would you rather be cast into an eternal lake? And in a sense, without calling it a game or being silly about it, that's really what Jesus is doing here. He's telling them to weigh the eternal consequences of their, their life choices. And he's saying, is it worth it to you to go into heaven one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed, to meet, to meet God face-to-face, to have that right relationship with him? Are you tempted this way to, to act without thinking? 
How about your influence? If somebody just watched what you do with your hands, like somebody like, say, like Google, who knows all your search history and stuff, if, if they saw everything you search for, would they be led to glorify God or to run into sin themselves? Are you leading others to act this way? I mean, our kids learn to stare at screens because they see us stare at screens. And so much of life happens on screens right now. That's why I'm bringing that up. It could be anything. It could be any sin. Do you need an eye plucking to get an eternal perspective? I don't think Jesus is honestly speaking in hyperbole here, exaggerating to make a point. I think, and it seems from the text, pretty clear that he's serious about this. He would rather you be maimed. He would rather you want to be maimed and go into eternal life than to fall into sin and to miss out on that, the joy of knowing and worshiping God forever. Uh, we have the foot next. And it's a really similar pattern. These, these three really take that same pattern. The first warning was our influence, really. How do we... Uh, cause others to sin, these are all inward. What's within yourself and, and in this broken world that causes you to want to stumble yourself? Where do your feet lead you? These are just some probing questions to consider about, about your hands and your feet and your daily life. Do your, do your feet run from temptation like Joseph did when he was in that situation? Do you, or do you walk into suffering for the sake of others like Jesus did and does repeatedly? Are your feet blessed and beautiful because they bring glad tidings and good news to the nations? Declaring that God reigns, that he's sovereign. Declaring the salvation of the Lord. Again, let's, on each of these, let's consider our influence. If someone were to see our GPS... Someone were to see even at our job, you know, like on a film, they could see our actions, where we go, who we conversate with, the way we do it. Without even hearing it, would they be led to worship Christ, to ask more, or would they be led into sin? Let's ask these same things about the eye. If your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It gets, it really gets darker and darker throughout this passage. You know, you're, you're starting with a hand. You can kind of, you can get by in life without a hand. You know, you can use the other one to eat, to write, to, you can walk around. Your foot is pretty, it's pretty tricky. But you can use two hands to grab a crutch to get around. Your eye, it, it may at first seem a little less serious than this because it's more like you're missing out on the beauty of life than on the functionality of life. But it affects your perception. It affects your balance, your equilibrium. It affects the way you interact with the world. And it, Honestly, it could get you, especially in this time, it could get you into a lot of danger. 
But God is still, Jesus is still saying, it would be better to put yourself in that scenario than to fall into sin time and time again, to let yourself be trapped into sin. What do you let in your hearts, and how does it enter? It's typically through the eye, sometimes it's the mind. But a lot of times what we see, what we pattern ourselves to see, is what the heart longs for. We can't put horse blinders on like I would have loved to have done with Jack sometimes. Uh, but we can change our habits. Uh, we can put boundaries around us. We can ask for others who are believers to be accountable to us and us accountable to them. We can do things a little different. But are we willing to? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to live righteously? And is our gaze what we look at, what, we, what captures our imagination and our focus? Is that causing others to worship Jesus or to fall into sin? These warnings are straightforward. They're severe. And really, they're scary. You know, because we start to see as we read these and we think about these probing questions in, in each of these areas of our life. Uh, you know, eventually you start to say, okay, this is how you interact with the world. Your hands, your feet. It's how you get around, how you touch, feel, experience the world, how you see. You start to realize that we're guilty. We're guilty of all these. And we grow comfortable with the lure of sin while simultaneously growing cold to the love of Christ. As Christians, as believers, and this was true for the disciples too, we we often repent and think it's over as if we're not called to live a life of repentance, to be frequently turning from our, our sins and turning in faith to Jesus, asking for Jesus, from Jesus, for the faith to believe in him, to believe in his righteousness, that even though we can't muster up anything from within us, there's nothing deep down in us that can go, all right, I'm going to never cause anyone to sin again. And all, and all those boundaries and fixtures I was talking about, all those aids, we're going to fail at them every time. Every time. There's nothing deep down in us. So we have to ask Jesus for that faith to believe in his perfect example. Jesus actually did this for us. As far as the head and neck is concerned, you know, he had a crown shoved down on his head. He was in a way, drowning, because scholars tell us that as he, as he hung on the cross, his diaphragm would have collapsed. And so he would have been frequently rotating his wrist and trying to push up on the back of the cross with his, with his knees and his, his ankles, which were nailed, to get himself a full breath, to open up his diaphragm to be able to breathe, because fluid would have been rushing in. This is the the only person who ever existed who did not 
cause others to sin. He never caused anyone to stumble. And yet he gave his, his mortal life. Think about the sacrifice of Jesus. Not only did he not cause others to sin, he, when it came especially to children, he would chastise the disciples and say, don't keep them from coming to me. I want them. The least and the last, the lepers, the lame, he, he went after them. And he calls us to do the same. He called the disciples to do the same. For his hands, we know what happened to to them, they were nailed. A lot of people think most likely through the, through the wrist. But these are pure hands, the only truly pure hands in the world. You may not be willing to do whatever it takes to live righteously, but there's one who already has. Jesus lived totally righteous, and he went to the cross to take away that punishment. Not only do you not have to drown to death with a millstone cast around your neck, but you don't have to suffer in hell. It's escapable. Yes, it's eternal. Yes, it's horrendous. Yes, it's full of agony. And yes, the Bible clearly teaches that it's eternal conscious torment, that we, we would be aware. But it's escapable because the one who never used his hands for sin but was tempted, like we, we are, was willing to go have his hands nailed, was in the moment before he was going to trial, was willing to use that hand to put on the ear of somebody who was arresting him, who time and time again took bread and broke it and gave it to hungry people, who touched lepers, who spit in dirt and healed eyes, who touched the untouchables, This is, this is a Jesus Christ that we can point others to. Not, instead of causing others to sin, we can point people to this, to this Jesus. His feet were the same. He, he, they were pierced through, probably with one nail between both of them. And these are the feet that carried his own cross till he literally couldn't carry it anymore, that walked of his own volition to his own trial, that were washed by a prostitute that walked into shady or seedy looking places to be around people who needed him, to people who were neglected by society. The same feet who had gone all through Galilee and come back, was in Capernaum doing this ministry, teaching the disciples about what it is for the greatest to become the last. This Jesus who came the longest distance from heaven to earth has now traveled with these feet that have never gone into sin, only into sinful environments to rescue. And here he is on the cross. And as for his eyes, we know what happened there that uh, as the crown was pushed down over his forehead that likely blood was dripping in it as well as sweat that he was beaten so they were likely swollen shut. It would have been incredibly hard for him to see anything. These eyes never before saw, saw red in the way we would, we would use that phrase. He only used 
vengeance when it was right because he's the only one who can. When he drove the, the merchants out of the, out of the temple, he was totally justified in that. He didn't lose control of all his temper. He harnessed it and used it rightly. He never looked on another woman and thought anything about the things we think about. He never used his eyes for sin, and he, he never would have encouraged others to sin. Never could have. Yet he was tempted. And Jesus, looking up on the cross, saw no one around because he was abandoned by his closest followers. I mean, he, can you imagine Jesus squinting to see the, the women who would later come to him and caring for them even in his last minutes before he closes his eyes for good? Jesus took on the punishment so that we don't have to. We can receive a right relationship with the Father because of what he gave us at the cross. Because of him, his spirit literally can dwell within us and cause us to be able, at times, to live victoriously over sin. To live in such a way that others will look and be giving God all the glory. We'll be curious and want to ask why and how is this possible. How have you changed your habits? How have you been transformed because of Jesus he took away the punishment, but he also gave us his righteousness. He put a, a robe of his own righteousness on us, such that when the Father sees us, he rewards us. We don't, I mean, we literally don't deserve anything. And yet the one who had it all and deserves it all includes us in on this. He gives us his righteousness. And with that righteousness, we're able to, to do this last little section that, that Jesus instructs, which actually closes out this whole conversation with the, with the boy by his side from verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Do you remember the quarreling that was going on? Jesus asked the disciples, what, what, what were you talking about on the road? All of a sudden they got quiet. And now he's ending by saying, when you live peaceably with one another, it gives the Father glory. It adds flavor. It preserves. It's actually a sacrificial language. The, through this, uh, from about Mark 6 on, Jesus is more and more focusing on the disciples, preparing them for what it's going to be like when he's not there. And as he's doing this, he tells them the cost of discipleship. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And yet he's going to empower them and us to do that. He tells them about the greatest becoming the least. And, and in so doing, he's telling them, I'm about to go be handed over, die, and rise again. And through that, all this is possible. What does it mean to be salted with fire? It's kind of like, it's a, it's a short verse, but it's really kind of strange. I mean, does it mean like sprinkled with fire, you know, or does it mean 
I, the, the way I see it, it could mean at least two things. And looked at some different scholars, and they seem to come to the same conclusion. But either you become flavorful to the world and help preserve it, or you, through these experiences, through these hard times, you are refined as in a fire. And fire also has this, not only a refining quality to it, but a cooking quality to it as well. It, it soaks in the flavor. So we can live lives that are flavorful, that leave an aftertaste in people's mouth of the glory of God. We can live sacrificial lives like Jesus did because he enables us to do it. All that I was talking about is bad news, that, that we can't drum it up within ourselves. But there, because of Jesus, there's a way in which his spirit living through us enables us to live sacrificial lives. Turn to Romans 12 with me. Paul picks up on this same sacrificial language in the first verse of Romans chapter 12. It says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is a good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now that goes on. Um, it's a, that's an incredible chapter if you get a chance to read it this week. That goes on to describe what that will look like within the life of the church. But just consider that. There's one who died once and for all so that those of us as Hebrews 12, 4 says, we, we haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, but there's one who spilled his blood for us. Because he died once and for all, we can now live to his glory, live in that same cruciform way that we talked about a few weeks ago, live sacrificially, give sacrificially. But one of our problems is that, as I was talking about the, some of these, I guess you'd call them apologetics issues with hell, earlier, you know, some of the arguments against them and, and why they really don't stand. One of the problems is that we believe that's them out there believing that. But let's not be too judgmental about them and think for a minute about us. Do we really believe the reality of hell? I think if we really believed in the reality of hell, that Jesus' words here are true, it's likely that there would be less than 3 billion people in unreached people groups in the world headed for an eternity, a Christless eternity, having never heard the name of Jesus. And that one of those major barriers wouldn't be parents and family who deter their kids from the mission field. A salty way to live, a fiery way to live would be to encourage our kids to go, to send them, to prepare them, to launch them out, even from an early age, ingrained it in their mind. Because the call is crystal clear through Scripture. But it's just not those out there. We have loved ones in our family who don't know Christ. Are, are we willing to plea with God that they not be an instrument of His wrath? that they come to know him? Are we really convinced 
that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. I think if we did, I think it would make a difference, a bigger difference than it, it seems like it does now. But more than that, is the dwarfing of that hell as a reality of God and its bright brilliance. Do we really believe this good news we have can save people from that really real hell? Or have we grown cold to the love of Christ? Do we enjoy God by worshiping him? I mean, this is what we're made to do, enjoy God by worshiping him forever. And yet, do we do that? When we do, I think it, it causes others to glorify God. Our deeds cause others to glorify God in heaven. Our path in life causes others to scratch their head and say, what, what is this? But that can only be done through the enabling, empowering spirit of God. Let's pray for some of that power now. God, if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, a right relationship with you, and understands you truly as their father, I ask that you reveal yourself to them. I ask that you reveal yourself to them even now. I ask that uh, you shake us, God, that you awaken us to the reality that there are those that we love, those that we work with, that we should love, those that we see every day who are headed for an eternity where they will not know you. Well, they, they won't receive that, that salvation from punishment that you freely give. They won't receive that righteousness. God, help us to, to cry to you. You're the only one who saves. You're the only one who can do it. Use us, God. Use us in prayer. Use us in conversations. Help us to call others to know you. And God, renew in us the joy of your salvation. Help us to see how awesome it is to know a God who would save us from ourselves. Us creatures who would willingly and knowingly and continually lead others into sinful lifestyles who would, if it weren't for you, who would let our eyes and our hands and our feet control our life and rather than submitting all of our life to your Lordship. And yet you use us even like this. We thank you for that, Father. Help us to never take that for granted, this relationship we have with you. That as much as we want to recognize that reality of hell, we want to be rightly motivated by your glory to call others to worship you. Help us do that in every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.